Hello and welcome to Data Radicals. In today's episode, Satyan sits down with Matei Zaharia. Matei is an open source trailblazer and the mastermind behind Apache Spark, one of the most widely used frameworks for distributed data processing. Today, he oversees various data management and machine learning projects at Databricks and Stanford University. In this episode, Matei dives into the Databricks and Alation Partnership, assisting companies in owning their data and democratizing open source large language models. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Subscribe to our Radicals Rundown newsletter. You will get monthly updates on hot jobs worth exploring, news we're following, and books we love. Connect with past guests and the wider Data Radicals community. Go to alation.com slash podcast and enter your email to join the list. We can't wait to connect. Today on Data Radicals, we have Matei Zaharia. Matei is the co-founder and chief technologist at Databricks and an assistant professor at Stanford in computer science. During his PhD at UC Berkeley, he created Apache Spark and has contributed to other popular data and machine learning software, such as MLflow, Delta Lake, and Apache Mesos. He has received various prestigious awards for his research, including the 2014 ACM Doctoral Dissertation Award, NSF Career Award, and the US Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. We're super excited to have you. Matei, welcome to Data Radicals. Thanks so much for having me. Very excited to be here. So let's start with Spark, because in some ways, your public story started there. You created the Spark project, and now that's become probably the, the most widely used framework for distributed data processing. Tell us the story behind it and how it came to be. Yeah, for sure. So I started working on that in my PhD at UC Berkeley. So this was starting in 2007 is when I began there. I came into it. I was just interested in computer science in general. And I saw what I thought were the most interesting computer applications were these things happening in the large tech companies, things like search engines and social networks and stuff like that. And they all involve processing large amounts of data, basically everything on the web or even like internal data generated by servers and machines there. And all these companies had these internal systems to do it. There was nothing really like it outside. So things like MapReduce at Google. And I thought data is actually like, it's not that expensive to collect and store. It's actually getting less expensive. And it's very likely that more people will want to work on these super large data sets. And whether in science or in industry, different types of companies or really like anyone who has lots of users and is trying to analyze what their users are doing and improve their products. So I really want to figure out how do these technologies work and is there any way to democratize them and bring this kind of like large-scale data processing to more folks. So initially, I, I started working with some users of these technologies of MapReduce, basically, and like learning a little bit about the problems. And I also realized early on that as soon as an organization set up basically a data lake, lots of data data and started collecting things, they wanted to do a lot more. They wanted to do traditional SQL because that's what every data worker knows. They wanted to do interactive queries, and they also wanted to do more sophisticated algorithms like machine learning, which wasn't easy to support with MapReduce. So it quickly went from like, how do you get this kind of MapReduce stack in front of everyone to how do you actually go beyond that and try to figure out additional use cases? And so I started Spark as a project mainly focused on some of these new use cases on interactive queries and on machine learning at the beginning, and then kind of backed into 
also doing really well at the large-scale bulk data processing. And there was really not much in open source that had that broad scope and that had the performance of Spark at that time. And so it sort of grew into this community. And of course, as the community grew, like the project got a lot better. We got contributors from many places. We eventually decided to start a company that will spend quite a bit of its time at the beginning improving the project and so on. So you mentioned Hadoop, which obviously was sort of the predecessor. And in some ways, you know, you think about Cloudera, the name Cloudera comes from this idea that they would have delivered Hadoop in the cloud, although at the time that wasn't really a real business model for them or didn't become one. You then follow up with Spark. Do you think of Spark as a singular innovation or do you think of it as multiple improvements to basically deliver something that, Mm. you know, maybe the promise of Hadoop didn't deliver? How do you conceive of it? I mean, it was basically like one idea from the beginning, but maybe you can break it down into two pieces. So one thing that Spark did that you just couldn't do with the stack before is it was meant to be this like unified engine where you can run different types of computations and combine them into one flow and actually get really good performance optimization across that flow. And before in the Hadoop world, the idea was like from all the Hadoop vendors, if you looked at their website, the idea was there are many different open source engines you, you need to like set up and install. Like Hadoop was a stack. There was Hadoop MapReduce, which you use for certain stuff. There were like various things for SQL. There were other things for machine learning. There were like yet other things for streaming. And that is, of course, extremely complex because, you know, you got all these different engines with like slightly different interfaces, you know, different versions of the SQL language and, and so on that you have to hook together into an application. So in Spark, we kind of went the other way and said, look, all of these are like ultimately, you know, running some computation in parallel. Can we just have a single engine that does it? And no one was really trying that. So that in itself made it simpler and made it more powerful because you had all these new algorithms we didn't anticipate that people built. Just as an example, you know, Spark is known for supporting streaming, but before we built streaming, like one of our early users, one of the startups in the Bay Area that was using it, called me up and showed me, they said, hey, we have this really cool application. I don't know if the engine's supposed to be used this way, which is we keep like loading new data every like second and updating the state and like letting users query it. And we looked at it and thought, wow, that's streaming. And then they were saying the only downside is like after we run this for a few days, it crashes because like there's some stuff you're not cleaning up after each computation. And we're like, yeah, we never imagined someone would just run this for indefinitely long periods, but like, don't worry, we can fix that. So there were things like this, you know, some of the machine learning libraries as well that came in and no one had tried. And related to that for software developers, the secret of of like software development is it's very often gluing things together. Like you don't want to write your own algorithms from scratch for things. You just want to find things on the web, import them into your project and glue them together. And the unified engine and also the interfaces we chose for it and Python that made it really friendly for users also enabled that. Whereas before in the Hadoop world, you couldn't just grab a you know machine learning algorithm from the web and like attach it to your SQL pipeline and attach that to a streaming thing in like three lines of code. You had to maybe set up three different systems, set up some kind of infrastructure to orchestrate all those. So just this idea of like 
the system supports libraries, like different people can write them and then a user can bring them into the same program and they actually interoperate easily, was kind of new to that world at the time. And that became one of the big things we invested in. If you if you ever look at our talks early on, a lot of them are about libraries for Spark. Although it's kind of fun maybe to implement your favorite graph algorithm or machine learning algorithm on top of map and reduce, you probably don't want to do that as a developer. You want to grab one that someone else did. So I'd say this, yeah, unified engine plus the resulting ecosystem was the difference. In the early days, in the first couple of releases, what were you competing with at that point in time? Was it directly competing with Hadoop? Was this simply a better alternative to Hadoop that you were positioning at the time? Or was there some other competitive Mm. technology in the mindset of the buyer? So honestly, with Spark, like a lot of the initial goal was to broaden the audience of like what kind of people that can work with these large data sets that companies were accumulating. So like a company might set up Hadoop for like one use case, you know, that they consider important. Like, let's say we get all the event logs of what people did on our retail site. And we also bring in some data sets from the web. And like, we just built a recommendation engine or like we do some analysis. But once you have all that data in one place, you know, there are many other things you can do with it. And Hadoop required pretty advanced software engineers to work on it, to to do that stuff. So a lot of the initial goal was, can we get other users who like would never have used Hadoop, like a data scientist or even a business analyst that's just using SQL and BI tools to work with these large data sets. So in that sense, it wasn't really competing. It was kind of complementing. Of course, over time, people thought, hey, this is pretty nice. It's good for like really quick data science stuff. Can I also use it to write my big pipelines that took me like six months to build with lots of like Java development with Hadoop? And so it started moving into that space. But also like Spark, I mean, I think most people view it as something you can run on Hadoop or you can just run it on the cloud directly on stuff like Amazon S3. And for us, it was more about basically broadening the market and bringing not exactly the same kind of product, but something like that to more people and getting them excited about what they can do with data science and machine learning and just analytics at scale. Were there particularly gnarly, complicated technical problems that you had to solve in the early days? Or did you feel like much of what you were doing was unifying various bits of infrastructure, various bits of compute logic that were already discovered, various algorithms and libraries that otherwise weren't supported? So first of all, I think there is a big design challenge to make these things work smoothly with each other. Just as an example, like something we did pretty early on, actually, the Spark project was open sourced in 2010. And then like around 2013, 2014, we were working on this, is we updated a lot of the internals of Spark basically to look like a SQL database engine. So we updated the system to be able to do query planning the same way a database would. And we changed a lot of the libraries, the machine learning libraries, the graph ones, and so on to use SQL operators like joins and selects and group buys. And that allows us to get powerful kind of query optimization across these applications and also to keep improving their performance of all the libraries as we made new releases of the engine without those people having to go back and like change their code in some way. Like the way you use that in Spark now is data frames. Data frames are something you 
can use in Python that basically translates into SQL. Of course, you can also use SQL directly. So that, I think, wasn't obvious at the beginning. It wasn't clear that you could make these other algorithms like run on top of these and optimize across them. And then beyond that design aspect, I would say, yeah, th there are a lot of technical challenges with making something like this really work in a foolproof, easy to use way for everyone. So you can stand up like thousands of jobs, you know, you can have thousands of people that are using the system each day and asking it to do weird things. And like, you know, it doesn't crash, it doesn't go slow and so on. That kind of stuff you can work through as you get users, you, you kind of figure out, hey, what are the top problems they're running into? How do we fix them? And it's this ongoing sort of engineering effort. It's interesting because if you look at the story of Databricks on the face of it, you see these fabulously intelligent, brilliant computer scientists who are folks who could likely do anything, you obviously being at the forefront of that. And yet, as you narrate your story, you talk a lot about focusing on user problems, being doggedly persistent about solving them. I expect many of them would have been quite unsexy to address, but would have been actually quite tedious. And so the inside story sounds a little bit different from the outside story. Is that a fair reflection of what you feel is the reality of how the business got built? As I said, I was really interested in sort of democratizing this kind of technology, helping everyone take advantage of it instead of having just a couple of companies that can really like do things with all the data out there. And that is a big part of computer science and especially computer systems, which is sort of the main field I'm in, is figuring out like interfaces is basically, you know, like human computer interaction in a sense. It's like, how should programmers work with a thing? How should even end users work with it? And how do you make it easy for them to like do what they want without worrying about some of the hard technical problems, like pack those in a box and like let them use it. So personally, I was always really interested in, can people actually use my thing? I wasn't so interested in like, do I have something clever that looks good on paper? You know, other academics are impressed by it, but maybe it doesn't really solve the problem. And like, whenever I talk to someone and I realize, hey, their problem is something like slightly different from what I thought, I'm always like super happy. Like, even if it seems less interesting, usually if, if it is a problem for people, it means it is difficult and it's like good to like really think about it and figure out why. When did you realize in your academic work that Spark could become a commercial endeavor and how did that realization happen? We definitely didn't set out to commercialize it and to start a company, but I think about two or three years in, we did see a lot of organizations picking it up and using it. And like one really weird thing, kind of a slightly funny story is at the beginning, we, we went to the vendors in this space, like the Hadoop ones, other like large tech companies, and we tried to get them to use Spark in their offering because it's just something you can use in your stack. And none of them really wanted to because they felt like they have to really own the technology. They felt like, oh, maybe if UC Berkeley stops developing this, we'll be stuck. We'll give our customers something that isn't really future proof and so on. So it was actually pretty hard to convince them. So First of all, of course, we were excited about starting a company and, and we thought with the rise of cloud computing, actually, it's a good chance to create a new data platform company because everyone is replatforming anyway to move to the cloud. But also we thought that, hey, to like really understand the space and have an impact, we need to have a company so that there's something enterprises can trust to like build and maintain the software long term. Yeah. And the founding of it, obviously fabulously successful today, 
and it's been roughly a decade? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. How long did it take from the point of founding to the point where you knew this was something significant and big? When was it obvious and clear that this was an unmitigated and runaway success? Was that Mm -hmm. year one, year five, year three? There are always stages to it. So you're you're never like really done and there's always more you can do. But I would say after about two years or maybe three years, that's when we hired a great head of sales. We, We had our product working, you know, I mean, it took uh, probably in the first year, we were just building the first cloud version of the product and and getting feedback from early users. And we saw that, hey, the sales team actually kind of hit a stride and was able to repeatedly like get people to try the software. And then they were growing a lot year on year and they were, they were successful with it. So that's when we thought, okay, we have something repeatable here. You know, it's not just a one-off, maybe like if the co-founders are heavily involved with a customer, like they'll try our stuff because they feel like they're getting a lot of attention, but there are always levels to that. I mean, there's always like, when do you get the first seven figure deal? When do you get something larger than that? We are also at the beginning of the cloud and our strategy was to build like just on the cloud initially. We we would, we would always said, you know, we'll go back and like if major parts of the in- industry aren't shifting to cloud, then maybe we'll do an on-prem thing, but that didn't really happen. But for example, banks, like we did this like tour of a bunch of banks in New York, I think in, in 2015, and they all said like, we'll never be on the cloud, you know? And then like a few years later, when like the first of those were actually moving there, those were kind of big milestones for us. Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, very similar in terms of our journey. Mm-hmm. You now describe yourself as a lake house company. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what a lake house is. Yeah, so lake house is a unified data management system that basically combines the benefits of, of data lakes and data warehouses. So it's very related to like Spark being a unified engine, but it's now for just data management as a whole, right? So at at Spark itself, it's only a computing engine, whereas Delta Lake is the technology we have for data management, for like actually storing data and tracking different versions and doing transactions and so on. And then Delta Lake plus Unity Catalog, which is sort of our operational catalog that you guys know well and work with, that's sort of like the metadata piece of it. The idea behind Lakehouse is, again, much like the idea behind Spark, we we think it's much easier for organizations to work with with one platform that can span the sort of large-scale, maybe unstructured data you'd have in your data lake with the capabilities you get in a warehouse that include really high performance, caching, indexing, transactions, multiple versions, data sharing, stuff like that. So we're designing this kind of unified system that does both. And apart from like just, hey, the fact that you can have a single table or a single data set that you can use in directly and like say large scale ML and in business intelligence and in DBT and so on. The other thing you get from this is we we built it all on open interfaces and open data formats, which is the thing we inherit from, from the data lake world. So part of it is figuring out how do you get like super high performance, powerful management features, powerful governance features on top of data and these open formats that historically has been more just like something in the engineering department that like, you know, it's hard to bring lots of users into. Yeah, it's it's super interesting because I mean, if you think about a traditional relational database, all three of those elements would have existed, but as a bundled offering. So you would have the storage, mm-hmm. you know, implicit in the schema, you'd have 
obviously compute and the compute engine. And of course, you'd have the underlying catalog with all of the metadata, which could be both technical and in some cases, even sort of business metadata, as people would describe it. And you're breaking all these things apart. And of course, the challenge with that strategy is now you've got sort of competition on multiple vectors, and especially in the world of open source. I mean, Delta Lake mm -hmm. is a standard. There are multiple standards that it could compete with. Unity Catalog, is there a competitive thing to that that you see out there? I mean, I guess, you know, all of the cloud megascalers mm -hmm. have sort of an equivalent, but it does mean that you've sort of got to innovate on multiple vectors and compete on multiple vectors. How do you think about that sort of challenge of integrated offering versus sort of standalone success? One has to pick. How do you pick? Well, definitely enterprises are looking for an integrated simple offering. If you have a product with sort of open interfaces, open access, of course, there are many ways people can use it. But when people ask us like, hey, you know, I just want to get work done. How do I just set it up and, and make everything work? Well, like we have this sort of recommended way of, of doing things where like, you know, we'll make sure you have really great features and so on. And the nice thing with, with that is, you know, if you do have a, a business unit that say is using a different compute engine or different storage format or whatever, we can still connect to it and work with it. And like, we'll build features, for example, to let you have like access control and auditing and all these kind of features over that. So like, we're sort of open to those and you can bring those in. But if you just want to like, you know, set up a group and tell them like, hey, here's what you do. So you don't have to worry about issues. And so you're always like on kind of the best tech that Databricks will work with, we, we recommend that. One of the early stories about open source has been this thing about the cathedral and the bazaar. So like the cathedral is the thing is all designed by like one person, maybe it's like extremely coherent and so on, but also like kind of takes forever to build. And when you go there, you know, there's like one message you're hearing. And then the bazaar is the thing, it's like the open thing, like you don't know who's going to show up each day, but there'll be some really interesting goods and like things that you just wouldn't see anywhere else. We do want to give people a simple, unified way. Like if you just want to get started and get stuff done, follow the defaults in the product and it will work. But we want to be open to some of that innovation and like let people bring that in. Do you feel like you have to do one or the other? Or do you think you're building a sort of bazaar inside of a cathedral? Yeah, it's definitely, it's a, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. we And, and we're also trying to figure out sort of the what kind of things can we do to make it easier to interoperate and bring in things from the bazaar while having, for example, like strong governance? So, so for example, like in machine learning, every day there's like a new machine learning, you know, framework you can run. There's a new model. There's like and all these things like require you to basically like log into some machines and like run some scripts and stuff. We're trying to figure out, you know, how to do that while having strong data governance properties and like strong audit trails and easy UI. There is a little bit of like, as you're going through the bazaar, can we kind of guide you or like maybe like protect you from, from some of the scarier things out there? Yeah, yeah. And therefore you have to have sort of opinionated integrations and thoughtfulness around mm -hmm. this. It's a pretty interesting thing. I mean, when I was at Oracle, where I kind of professionally grew up, mm -hmm. I was actually on the app side and there was, of course, the database side and the database side controlled the company. And there was a running joke on the app side, which is if you waited long enough, the database would do it. And that seems a little bit to describe your story and it literally from day one where you know, on some level, it's like, we're going to support a set of libraries, we're going to basically support different versions of compute. And that is going to be sort of an ever expanding pie where now you've gotten into lake houses. Do you see this going, you know, even further into the world of sort of transactional processing? Or where do you describe the mission versus the vision around what's near and what's far? So overall, like we are really focused on what we can build well, and what what makes sense to get as integrated like data and AI platforms. So for example, like, 
I'll mention like some things we're, we're not building. Like for example, we we don't build our own you know machine learning like algorithms and frameworks. Like we don't have like a competitor to say PyTorch or Scikit-Learn or like stuff like that. We we let people you know bring the external ones from outside, and we just try to you know make sure that they work well with other things you want from an enterprise platform like cost management, collaboration, access control, and stuff like that. The things we did build, we we started out with the engine because we think that's something valuable. It directly translates into like cost and into performance and you know usability and efficiency for users. And then we added the data management layer with Delta Lake and, and Unity because it was a, a big problem for people. Like they said, you know, we, we love like your engine, but you know, we really need you to integrate data management and to make it easy to do these things. And I don't think we'll add like too many major new things. You mentioned transactional data. So definitely we have good integrations and and we're working on even more integrations with like bringing in data from transactional systems as events happen and also pushing stuff out so you can serve it. And we also have model serving for machine learning, which you can then plug into these applications. So, so there might be like some more infrastructure there, but we're not going to go into to an area unless we think we can provide real value there. And unless we think it's something that companies like really want to integrate with their data and AI sort of pipeline. Yeah. You mentioned Unity Catalog. Tell us a little bit about that offering and just describe what it is, why you build it, and why you launched it when you did. Maybe bring us forward towards what the roadmap would be for it. So yeah, so Unity Catalog is this unified catalog of all the assets you you have in Databricks. And it's mostly operational, but also has discovery features and some governance features. So I think the, the really unique thing about it is it's one place where you can see, you know, not just like tables and views, which are, you know, your classic like data catalog things, but stuff like machine learning models, streaming data sets, dashboards, notebooks, other types of assets you're working with in data, basically anything that you can build on our platform. And it's a, you know, it's kind of a simple idea, but again, historically, like you got these things from different vendors, different platforms. So for example, like if you're using, say, just Amazon Web Services, but really like any of the cloud vendors, they all have a machine learning platform where you can train models and stuff. But like, how do you get, you know, low level security in that? You can't because the, the ML platform just thinks of the world as like a bunch of files. Like it's literally put some data into a S3 bucket and then like run this thing on it. They all have a BI kind of offering, but can you go from like a database table in your database and like trace through the lineage and like see all the dashboards that came out of that? It's not it's not super easy. You know, you have to do a lot of work to, to put those together. So basically we just want to have these things in one system on our platform in one language. Of course, it's still only for things on our platform, things you can work with on there, but it, it does make it easier to manage those specific things. And the things we're f focusing on now, you know, apart from just like giving you a uniform interface to all these things, we have some nice cross-cutting features like access control that you can do in the same way across everything. Tagging, again, same system of tags on like all your stuff in, in Databricks and then sharing and lineage. So these are kind of the main things that we'll do. Yeah. And all of those things are things that we're sort of excited to integrate with, but you mentioned one in particular, access mm -hmm. control. And this morning, we also the announcement of Databricks buying Okera. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that and tell us a little about why you did it and why now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we see customers wanting, you know, more and more advanced access control features. And I would say there are two, two 
aspects of access control. So one is more the operational part, like what can you do efficiently in the engine, right? And people can can write a policy asking for all kinds of stuff, but if that results in like, you know, each time you read a record, you have to like join with another table and look at things that really slows things down. So part of the reason why we are building attribute-based access control into our platform is to be able to integrate it well with the engine and then do that stuff efficiently. Same thing applies to this machine learning piece, right? Like if you have an untrusted like ML library and we want to filter data very quickly and like feed it only data that's secure, how can we do that efficiently? That requires a little bit of design of like the way we run that thing and the way the rest of the system works. The other aspect of it is the policy authoring and like, you know, user interface aspect. And honestly, like most companies will will have many data platforms, not just Databricks. They'll have all kinds of stuff. We have, you know, our offering within our platform, but we also want external, you know, higher level platforms isolation to log into that. And the cool thing with us building the operational bits into the engine is now these these ones that were before like limited by more limited types of access control you can do in Databricks suddenly can do more advanced things like attribute based or like more complicated policies. So there were quite a few companies that before were like putting in plugins into Spark and stuff like that to implement their policy that hopefully can just have that part done by us and can can focus on the authoring and the sync across different systems and like the really great interfaces for users in the enterprise. And Okera will help with both of them, but primarily I would say with the operational piece, which they've had very efficient ABAC for a while. Yeah, they deeply understand the problem. And it strikes me that there obviously have been lots of companies, Okara being one of them, that have been founded with this premise of sort of cross-platform, heterogeneous access right management. But it's a terribly difficult problem because the compute and the internals Mm -hmm. have to be optimized for how those access rights are provisioned. And so by building it into, I'm going to broadly call you a database, by building it into the database, you obviously can more elegantly optimize and deliver an easier experience. I think it makes total sense. And you know, from our perspective, we just want to give users the ability to find the data that they need. So if you can tell us what they can access, then mm-hmm. that makes all the sense in the world. But there's also other gnarly problems like lineage, which obviously mm-hmm. is quite complicated, particularly in the context of files and Spark, where there's, you know, very complicated jobs. Tell us how you're innovating there and tell us the bounds of the problem that you're trying to solve on that score. We are building lineage tracing throughout our platform. So all the computations you run on Databricks. And one of the the cool things we're doing there is because we did bet on this unified engine that can do the different workloads like streaming, ML, SQL, and so on, we can actually implement lineage like within the engine that tracks dependencies at the level of fields, at the level of columns, basically. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we've done so far. So, so we instrumented our, our engine to, to give you column level lineage. And so basically, like pretty much anything you do, whether it's in data science notebooks, whether it's in ETL jobs, whether it's in SQL, even if you're submitting the SQL from an external tool, we can get this fine-grained lineage on. So that's basically what what we've built. It's very efficient. It's like, you know, pretty much no overhead to run and you get the data within seconds and you can actually query the lineage as a table. So you can even write automated jobs that like look at what's derived from this or like what are the most delayed, you know, upstream data sources or stuff like that. We think it will also be awesome for tools like Alation to, to plug into, to analyze that data and like, you know, show people insights about it. And yeah, it's, it's basically just for things in our platform. I think for external stuff, we just track, you know, where did we read from? Like 
before it came into our engine. I love the fact that you've made the design decision to, to write it as a table and to enable people to flexibly and declaratively tell what you want from it because lineage is a very it's mm-hmm. a complicated problem you don't know what people are looking for people themselves don't know what they're looking for we kind of similarly were inspired by jira and also mm-hmm. to an extent sort of that jql query language because the same thing is true with another layer of abstraction mm-hmm. which is when people are doing data stewardship it's like i want tables that are larger than x terabytes mm-hmm. and that have been produced by mate that were built in this country and you're like okay well that, that's a query mm-hmm. how do i go yeah. get it for people and so i think this idea of flexibility at the data management level mm-hmm. is really exciting you guys have invested in elation in our last round we were obviously tremendously excited about that felt like it was a very natural evolution because i think in some sense both companies share this ethos of simplifying data in different ways but but simplifying data for people where do you see the partnership going forward obviously you're innovating on the vector of unity catalog and in many other domains how do you see this part of the bazaar if you will opening up yeah i think they're, they're very complementary so as i said like one way to view us is like we want to build the database of the of the future right for for analytics so we think the database of the future needs ai first class it will power ai apps obviously it needs data it needs a great engine it needs like you know, great sort of management, but in in the grand scheme of an enterprise, it is still you know one system. We think it's the right system for analytics for many cases, but you'll never have like large enterprise that like migrates just everything overnight to to one system. And on top of that, database of the future, you still want you know you want a great experience for users. You want discovery, you want management, and uh, also those problems are problems that inherently like you want a platform that works across everything you have in your enterprise, not just Databricks. So it's very complimentary. Like we're only in this like part of the pie where there are a lot of big problems to like make a make an awesome system for like people to to do large scale data processing and BI and like all that stuff together. Before people even get to that, there's this question of how do they find the data? And then for like the the CIOs and like the people who have to manage everything happening, there's the question of okay, how do I track across the hundreds of databases and vendors I have in my company? How do I track what's going on? Um, and yeah, I think it's Unity Catalog makes this world of like the the lake house and, and that initially was a little bit more rough, a little bit like more in the realm of just engineering and data science. It makes it much easier to build these kind of advanced management and discovery features over it and, and really open it up to more users. So we're really excited about that to bring it in front of every enterprise user. Yeah, no, we are too. And and you've mentioned AI a couple of times, and obviously a large part of building a company is problem selection. Like, what am I going to work on? And you mentioned you're not going to work on transaction processing because that's kind of yesterday's problem. You recently announced Dolly 2.0. So tell us a little bit about what that is and why you built it. Mm -hmm. I'm actually wearing my Dolly t-shirt. I don't know if you can see it. but (laughs) In the sheet (laughs) with sunglasses. (laughs) Yes, we're giving these out at our conference in June, actually. So, you know, everyone has seen in, in the past few months that that large language models have gotten very good and actually you can build really powerful conversational interfaces with them. So ChatGPT really showed that to the world. Ironically, like, and kind of strangely, you know, 
even before that, like GPD-3 and 3.5 could do this stuff. It's just that no one had <laughs> just put them in, you know, on a web page in front of like any user to talk with. So it was pretty interesting. I mean, it's almost exactly what you did with Databricks, right? I mean, on some level, it was mm-hmm. the interface that simplified and built people's imaginations about what was possible. That's absolutely true. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, like even for myself, I had, you know, in my research group at Stanford, we were using GPD-3 and, and other stuff for some projects. And we're like, okay, this is kind of cool. We can do this. But it wasn't so easy to just say, like, can it help me write a tweet? Can it help me write a program for like this thing I'm working on, whatever? And it, it became so easy to try with the chat interface. This has gotten a lot of companies excited about AI with language specifically. Of course, AI you know, is also getting good at, at other things. There are many companies working on computer vision and, and, and stuff like that as well, and traditional predictive analytics. But I think the, the language stuff is is especially exciting for two reasons. Like first, I think it it can dramatically improve interfaces to all software, like any kind of like human computer interaction. You know, you could imagine making it better through some conversational elements or at, at the very least to like smarter semantic search or stuff like that. So everyone's thinking about it. And the other one is if you have lots of like text data that, you know, is just like a bunch of like PDFs or documents or something, suddenly you have a pretty powerful tool to analyze it in bulk. So like you might want your data warehouse, your SQL engine to be able to read text documents and, and answer questions about them that are sort of these ill posed, not just like string contains, you know, whatever like return but like hey is this is this message about like a product return you know even though they didn't use the word return so like both both things are are exciting the thing we saw going in is that especially these like conversational models you can just kind of talk to and prompt and get them to do something were limited to large providers like like open ai and and google to some extent and everyone thought like oh i have to send all my data to this external vendor they're going to see what i'm doing Basically, I have to take this dependency on this service that like sees, you know, extremely private data to like build these features. And so we we wanted to show people that you can do this yourself and to accelerate the development of open source conversational models. So with Dolly, we took basically some open source models that were released. They're not, you know, as like good overall as something like ChatGPT. In particular, they're smaller, so they don't have as much broad world knowledge. But we showed that you can make them into these promptable, what what are called instruction following models, where you can just tell it what you want it to do in words, and it, it will actually do that thing without you know a ton of effort. And one of the most kind of fun things we did as part of that is people had showed that you can train these models to become conversational by showing them a bunch of conversations by training them on it. Not too surprising, I guess. And But everyone was using outputs from ChatGPD to train them. And the terms of use for like OpenAI say, you can't use our outputs to build models that compete with OpenAI. So that was a big problem. Like you could do it in research, you could write a paper, but no one wanted to do it commercially. So we realized, you know, we have about 5,000 employees. We can just ask all of them to like write a few example, you know, like here's a message you'd like to send to a chatbot and here's what you'd like it to answer. And we created this data set of like 15,000 conversations essentially that you can use for training and it turned out to be pretty good. It turns out to give you similar, you know, results to like using the chat GPD outputs or many other things out there. So it's just the start of, you know, of our work in in LLMs. Like with other stuff, our 
hope is to help democratize this and help every company feel like, yeah, they can they can own their data, own their models and build their own advantage in this space and and really explore this stuff on their own as they see fit for their business. Do you ultimately see Dolly as a potential competitor to what OpenAI offers? So it's a great question. So just to be clear, like Dolly is surprisingly good at conversation. We were surprised because we, we use these open source models that haven't been trained on a lot of data and just on their own were kind of just outputting, you know, gibberish for most tasks. You, you know, you definitely couldn't just instruct them or prompt them to do a thing. And we gave them a little bit of like instruction training with this data set. And suddenly, like they're pretty good. They can generate all kinds of stuff. But it, it, it's not state of the, the art for like some of the things you would do in GPD-4 or chat GPD. So don't, don't expect it to just replace that. But the way it does compete, and I think this is really important, is if you have a more limited domain, which I think most enterprise applications do, then it can be really good in that domain. The main thing it's not as good at is, is broad world knowledge. So we release different sizes of Dolly models based on different open source ones. And you can try like stuff like if I ask it who is, you know, Ali Godsey, our CEO, like maybe the biggest model knows about Ali and like the smallest model doesn't. It just makes up something that sounds plausible. You know, if you ask it some question about chemistry, or something, again, the bigger models know more, the smaller ones know less. But if you just wanted to do conversation, if you wanted to like do stuff based on general knowledge, like, you know, I got this this piece of customer feedback from someone and is it about like the battery life of my product or is it about like initiating a return? It will do that just well. And I also think in most domains, if you tune it on enterprise data, on your jargon, like your concepts, that's like a way smaller amount of stuff it has to learn than like literally everything on the internet and it will do pretty well. And we're not the only ones doing this. Like if you look at, for example, code completion models, there's this really nice one built by Rep it recently and there were others before all of the ones you use as coding assistants are quite small in terms of number of parameters you know very fast very small they're not like gpd3 or foresight so i think there's a lot of research to be done on like how many parameters you need for different applications but i think there are lots of applications where something like dolly works well and we're starting to see that with our customers we have lots of customers that have used that have tuned that for specific things and they're getting things done and they can fully own the infrastructure for that yeah it's it's really interesting to sort of see the world of this like approximate turing test passing sort of generalized ai mm-hmm. and then all of the spe- specialized models and to see sort of where those intersections will occur and whether one will envelop the other or how the lines will get drawn is fun to watch and fun to see. Tell us about the adoption of Dolly to date. What are you hearing from users? Has the traction been better or worse than you'd expect? It's been definitely better than we expected. One of the best things about it, I think, is actually in the open source world. You know, there are many other groups, many other companies interested in democratizing language models and and making things work with them. So we've seen a lot of really cool things built on it in that world. And it's kind of become the default if you want a commercially usable LLM that's like not not encumbered by any weird like terms of service from OpenAI. It's become the default people use for that. Like, I mean, just a, a, a simple one I saw like yesterday is someone released this like pretty popular project for how to get a language model to always return answers as JSON, which you can imagine for this analysis use case. Like I want to read a bunch of documents in my company and extract structured data from them, but I always wanted to extract it with the same schema. Don't make up a schema. Just tell me like, you know, is it a return? Like what product is it from? What country? Like 
I give you a schema. And, you know, someone came up with a trick to get the model to do that by like only filling in the blanks in an existing sort of skeleton of an output. And they use Dolly as the example. So you can just use that everywhere. So it's, it's been awesome to see this. And within customer, yeah, we, we've seen everything from, you know, like retailers, like restaurants, insurance companies, financial companies using it and, and prototyping things. We've seen like, you know, these healthcare companies that are doing like local stuff that's supposed to run on your phone and it's like very private data that you never want to send out. So quite, quite a bit of use, as I said. And this is sort of the beginning. I think the community, the research community, the open source community will produce even better models. You know, we're also looking at certain aspects of it. We're really interested, like among the common use cases our customers have, you know, how to make those easier and how to sort of package those up into, into a solution. And I think you'll see some, some really cool stuff coming out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch because, I mean, on one level, one of the value propositions is to be able to preserve your IP and not have to deal with these terms of service. And then on the other hand, an open source model would allow for contribution back. So how people think mm-hmm. of what they contribute back and what they're going to keep specialized should be fun and interesting for you to say. I think m- many companies are now now viewing their data as an even more valuable asset than before. Lots of companies actually that made stuff crawlable on the web, like Reddit, are turning that off and saying, you know, you can't use this to train ML models because we want to sell it to you for that. We think many companies will build proprietary things. The, the open source model is a good basis to start from, but I think everyone will then kind of tune it for their domain and get something better and then figure out how to use that. Use it in your product, maybe resell it somehow, whatever it is that they do. Absolutely. So maybe two more questions before I let you go. The first is on culture within Databricks. I mean, you had a lot of mm-hmm. open sourcing of the knowledge that got Dolly off the ground. We, in this podcast, talk a lot about data culture, about what it means to make sort of organizational-based data decisions. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the data culture at Databricks? I mean, it's an enterprise company. It's got lots of academics, lots of innovation, open source. So it's an interesting playground for construction. Yeah, we are a large company. We we have many of the things you'd see as a as a public company you know even though we're not public we try to operate internally as if we were because we're getting close to being public at some point so we have a lot of those those same concerns basically the culture is as much as possible you know we try to be very transparent internally like all the way from like basically early like showing the whole company our basically board deck like every every time he has a board meeting and we we try to let people work with data and and discover things on their own while keeping things you know private and secure so we we try to build all these like you know versions of, of tables and data sets that anyone can work with and to, to figure out sort of lightweight processes for people to request a new thing or to like build their own or to create derived data sets and and work with that and we have like tens of thousands of dashboards and tables and things like that built internally that people use we also have you know these like restricted domains as you can imagine many other companies would for things like finance and HR. And of course, we heavily like use our own product and we sort of act as the first customer of things like, you know, Unity Catalog for for that. But yeah, our, our philosophy has been like, let people look around and let people try to build things. And we focus very significantly on like letting users kind of do their own thing and then ask the data team to operationalize things that are extremely valuable. Yeah. So transparency from the top and open and available information everywhere. Yeah, as much as possible. You know, obviously there are a lot of things you can't just 
look at as an employee, but yeah. So you're a Stanford professor and you're also the chief technologist at a company that might be one of the biggest companies in data. That feels like a couple of different hard jobs. How do you allocate your time and balance your time? And how do you define yourself in the context of having so many competing alternatives on your time? I started out in academia and, and research. And since I had the opportunity to, to do that as a professor, I wanted to see what it's like and, and to see what I can do there. So I, I decided to split my time between them after like, you know, first two years of Databricks, I was, I was there full time. The only you know reason it's possible is because we have an amazing team overall. So I can, I can still add a lot of value without having to be there all the time. Like all of engineering reports to our SVP of engineering, you know, who's not me. And so I don't have to do like all the day-to-day management stuff you can imagine there. Usually I work on like a few products where I'm involved in detail at Databricks and then also on overall like company roadmap and, and strategy, like sort of looking across all the things we're doing and making sure that they fit well together and, and that they make sense. And in terms of how I actually split my time, I, I try to have days that are like fully dedicated to either like Databricks or Stanford stuff. And one thing is as a, as a professor, like, you know, it is a job where like you're supposed to be able to do other stuff. Like all universities let you do one day per week of external work usually during the school year. And then in the summer, they let you do basically whatever you want every summer. So it is, it gives you the opportunity to like look outside and do things in the wider world outside the university. So it's not like completely at odds with that. But yeah, I've I've tried to pick things so that I get to explore and research like kind of up and coming things at Stanford, like my, the work I was doing with LLMs and stuff like before they became super, (laughs) super popular. And maybe I learned some stuff that will be eventually useful for Databricks. And at Databricks, I I can focus on like the things I'm, I'm particularly good at. It's incredible. And it sounds pretty gratifying. So great to meet you. Great to have you take the time. I think everybody who would be listening to this would appreciate the insight and the thoughts about what you've built. So look forward to building the relationship and look forward to getting you back again on the podcast in fair order. Yeah, awesome chatting. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and it's been awesome working with you guys so far. And yeah, this is a super exciting time for data in general. And I always tell people, I think it's it's still at an early stage. You know, we're still figuring out the right interfaces for everything, the right ways to really democratize these within an enterprise and so on. And it's awesome to be working with you guys. From starting the Spark project to co-founding Databricks, Matei has remained focused on a core problem statement. How do we make data and analytics accessible to more people? Building a platform like Databricks is a lot like constructing a cathedral. It must be elegant, consistent, and robust. However, it also has to accommodate for a bazaar of use cases, ranging from business intelligence to machine learning to AI. If there's one thing you take away from this conversation, then, it's that staying authentic to your vision will pay dividends in the long run. Sometimes that means building a rock-solid user experience, and other times it means building an open platform that would allow others to showcase what they can do. Thank you for listening to this episode, and thank you, Matei, for joining. I'm your host, Satyan Sangani, CEO of Alation. And Data Radicals, stay the course, keep learning and sharing. Until next time. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Let's meet up at the Databricks Summit this summer. We'll reveal how Alation data intelligence is key to your data lakehouse success. Get a first-hand look into how top organizations are simplifying cloud complexity with Alation and Databricks. The Data and AI Summit runs from June 26th to the 29th in San Francisco. We can't wait to connect. Learn more at databricks.com slash data AI summit.